You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. We are so glad that you could be with us this morning as we continue on in our series on the, the modern family. A couple months ago when we were planning this series and, and really settling into the, the final details, we got word that Gary Thomas was going to be in town this weekend, that he was going to be the, the keynote speaker at the Pregnancy Resource um, Center's gala last night and asked him if he and his wife Lisa would consider extending their stay and spending the morning with us in our, our morning services and preaching God's word. And he graciously agreed to do so. So I know he's tired, but we're so grateful that he's with us this morning. I first met um, Gary about 15 years ago at my previous church we had a retreat for our pastoral staff, and Gary came and spent the weekend with us. And uh, what I was most struck by was his love for God and his authenticity and, and his desire to know him better. Um, many of you are familiar with Gary through the books he's written, Sacred Pathways, Sacred Marriage, Sacred Parenting. Is there a sacred book you haven't written, Gary? They're, they're all sacred, right? And they're all incredibly profound and, profact- and impactful. I just made a word there. And built on the truths of God's word, as will this morning will be. He's just come out with another book called A Lifelong Love, and and much of what we'll be um, hearing this morning comes out of that and comes out of God's word. But we're so grateful that Gary could be with us this morning. Would you just join me in welcoming him um, to our Grace family and to our time this morning? thank you. And I, I do have to warn you that though I now live and minister in Houston, the sermon has not yet been approved by our mayor there. But um, <laughs> it's been approved by your senior pastor since he's letting me come back and give it. So I think that matters more. Uh, let, let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would make your words sing to us this morning. That you'd give hope to those that feel like they're in broken marriages. That you would give discernment and wisdom to those pursuing marriage. Lord, that you would give an even greater sense of awe and wonder for those who are just going along in their marriage. Help us see all that you would call us to. In Jesus' name, amen. My wife and I were a young couple at the time. We just had one little toddler. I was going to seminary. We had almost no money, so we rented this small little rundown house had a shared driveway with another very run-down house, and that was, owned, that was occupied by a single gal who lived there with her cat named Remington. Now, I've never been a cat person my entire life. I've only had dogs. But I found that you can kind of divide the world up into two groups of people. There are dog people, and there are cat people, all right? So to get a feel for where I'm at this morning, how many of you would call yourself dog people? All right? And how many cat people who will publicly admit it? All right, thank you very much. <laughs> I say that little jibe there because just as a dog person myself, I found it's rather objective because if, if somebody tells me they have a dozen dogs, my first thought is, oh, you have a kennel. If somebody tells me they have a dozen cats, my first thought is, oh, you have a mental illness. So I'm <laughs> just teasing if you're a cat person. That's just dog lover humor. But having been a dog person my whole life, we have this cat that's always just kind of running around, get on my car, all those things like that. Then one day I'm about to drive out, going out of our shared driveway, and right in the front of the street, right outside the driveway, I saw Remington. He had been hit by a car or truck or something overnight. I thought, hey, I can't just leave him here. So I parked my car, 
go to our neighbors gently as I can, try to explain to her what I saw. She came running out and saw Remington and breaks down crying. That drew my wife and daughter's attention, so they came out. They saw Remington and, and they started crying. So now I'm practically crying, not between you and me. I think the world is much worse off with one less cat, but really trying to be a sensitive husband, a loving father, even a good friend to our neighbor. So I finally decided we need to have a funeral to send Remington off properly. Since I was going to seminary, I was chosen to officiate. Put him in the ground. I did have to hold my tongue a little bit during the ceremony, particularly when somebody said he was an unusually smart cat, because I just thought, he just got hit by a car. You know, he's, he's a cat. You know how smart, but I held my tongue. We finally, we get him in. I felt like with some degree of sensitivity, I could finally go about my day. So our, my wife and daughter peel off into our house. Our neighbor starts to go off into hers. And just as I touch the door handle of my car, thinking here's freedom, I hear a scream coming from my neighbor's house. I run up the steps and she's looking at me, white-faced, ashen, can't even speak. She just turns and points at the couch and there sat Remington waving his tail. <laughs> we had buried somebody else's cat. <laughs> to this day, we don't know whose cat we buried. Um, had amazing markings on ears and tails, just like Remington. Obviously, it wasn't Remington that we put down, but my first funeral was a complete farce, and I'm hoping it went up from here. Buried somebody that wasn't dead, but... Um, if, if you told me part of loving my wife as a dog lover, growing up only with dogs, it would be having a sincere funeral for a cat. <laughs> I couldn't have imagined how that would happen. But here's the thing. If two people are to become one, as the Bible calls us to be in marriage, it requires that some of the rougher parts of our personality, parts of us have to die. It's sort of like if you're gluing two pieces together, you always sand both pieces down first to make them smooth, to make them fit, so they can be glued together. And I found in the contemporary age, we resent this notion of having parts of us sanded off so that we could be joined together with the end result that a lot of couples don't experience that true intimacy in marriage. They stay together, but they don't really feel like they're becoming one together. And, and, and that's why I wrote a lifelong love. Now, apparently I was here over a decade ago and I talk on sacred marriage. And some might say, what's the difference? The sacred marriage was about how God uses marriage to help us grow in holiness. The subtitle is, What if God designed marriage to make us holy even more than to make us happy? I found that God did use marriage to, to help shape us as individuals. A lifelong love is not about how one person becomes holy. It's about how two people become one couple. It's about intimacy. It's about togetherness. How does God take us and help us become one as a couple? And that's what I've been asked to speak on uh, this morning. Now, the problem with that, two people becoming one, that I found is that I think we begin with completely a wrong image of what marriage is. I go through this all the time with my premarital couples. I think too many couples think that building intimacy in marriage is like planting a tree. When you put this sapling in the ground, you, you give it extra care. You might stake it. You fertilize it. You water it. If you've got deer around, you might even put a fence around it. Because you know the first few years, that tree needs extra care. But you also know, five, ten years later, you can completely ignore it. Trees get strong enough, they just grow on their own. And that's how I found most of us treat our marriages. In the early days, we do the extra care. We share past histories. We spend time together. We intentionally date. We make sure we have good times. We resolve conflict. 
But then we act as if once we get married, somehow like a tree, it will just keep growing and finish itself. And I found that is not true. Being married for 20 years and expecting to automatically have marital intimacy, a sense of oneness, is sort of like spending a weekend in the kitchen and expect a cake to be baked by Sunday. It, it doesn't work that way. You've got to get the ingredients out. You have to mix them together. You have to put them in the oven. You have to make it happen. Rather than marriage being the sense, marital oneness being the sense of planting a tree, I think it's far more like building a brick house. And you build intimacy brick by brick. And if you stop at any point, even if you're 80% of the way done, and it doesn't matter why you stop, say you're, you're bored with each other, or you think it's not worth the effort anymore, or maybe it feels harder than you thought it would be. It doesn't matter why you stop, but if you stop, that house won't finish itself, will it? In fact, it'll even be worse. The weather will come in, the elements will come in, and that house will begin to fall apart. And I think that's what you see happening in home, across the country, home and home and home, as we build these marriages and, and then stop building them and are frustrated. So lifelong love is how can we build our marriage to completion? And what we have with great joy as believers is that we have a God who wants to build our homes for us. There's a tremendous passage in Jeremiah 31, 3 through 4, when God says this, this is God speaking, and he says this, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Again, I will build you, and you will be rebuilt. Now, this is speaking to a nation. We're going to have other paths where we see, I believe it's just as appropriate to apply it to marriage, although that's not the direct context. I know you have some top biblical scholars here so i want you to know i'm trying to handle this appropriately but it's really the picture of god saying i'm a builder and not only will i build you because it's not just a one-time thing i can rebuild you and what does that mean when we allow god to become our builder have you ever noticed how god is a passionate builder all those passages of the Old Testament that we like to skip through teach us something. God was really into building. Remember when he's laying out the plans for the temple? He gets so involved in all the details. The door jams have to be like this. I want it this wide. I want it this high. Here's where the windows go. Here's what the floor is made of. Here's what the walls are made of. I want these pillars and these columns. God is not haphazard. He's involved in every detail. And do you think a God who builds a temple, a one-time building that will be torn down like that, will not give as much effort and intention and purpose into building your marriage and your home and the shelter you have for your kids, your own family. The New Testament seems to extend this metaphor of a temple. We know worship isn't just about a physical temple. Jesus said, wherever two or more are gathered, there I am. Now worship is about God's people coming together. And two or more, that constitutes a marriage. And then 1 Corinthians 3, 16, we're told this. Paul says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? This really has three applications. It's true of God building a church. It's true of God building a marriage. It's true of God coming to us as individuals. We are God's temple. He wants to build us and he's into building. Now notice the building didn't just happen. God didn't just speak the temple into existence. He used people. He said, you've got to gather materials here. You've got to get the best workmen here. He called us to a cooperative effort. But then he says, and this is what I love, it's something that can be rebuilt. If you're here this morning and your marriage just hasn't seemed to be what you thought it should be, 
or you're frustrated and, and, and you don't know. The hope is that if God is the builder and the rebuilder, he can take a tired marriage or a frustrated marriage, an angry marriage or a distant marriage, and he can rebuild it into something that's wonderful. Maybe you realize, you know what? We really haven't built intimacy. We made our commitment, but we didn't continue through like that. Here's what I love about this, because the truth is, even if you marry the right person, so to speak, they'll become the wrong person if you don't build intimacy together, if the two of you aren't consciously pursuing that. So what I want to talk about this morning are really the three spiritual pillars of a biblically intimate marriage. If God is going to build and rebuild our marriage, what are the three pillars? How do we need to look at marriage differently so that God can create that experience in our own homes? The first thing we're told that we need is a magnificent obsession. The magnificent obsession. You know why so many couples get divorced? I've never seen this in evaluations. I've never seen it surveyed. They always ask other questions. I'm just saying as a pastor, look, I'm not a social scientist, but just as a pastor with my observation, I see more couples than not break up largely because they're just bored with each other. Isn't that true? Just think about that. And part of it comes out of the human condition. Can we just be honest? None of us are so fascinating that we can keep somebody enthralled for five or six decades. No, we're just not. Five or six dates, no problem. Five or six years, bit of a challenge. Five or six decades, that's tough. Look, even if you're Jerry Seinfeld or Tina Fey, after a while, your spouse has heard your stuff. They know your stories. They become commonplace. I heard a, a, a famous, well-accomplished man talking one time, and a woman came up to him and said, I just got to meet your wife because I know behind every successful man, there's a strong woman. And he said, not quite. Because behind every successful man, there's a surprised woman. <laughs> now, part of this comes out of how the relationship starts. And here's where you singles need to begin to really listen here. Because of infatuation, it's a neurochemical process. It's so intense. It has a shelf life of about 12 to 18 months. But when we begin to meet this person, we, we go into what neurologists call the state of idealization. At the start of the relationship, we're relating to somebody who literally doesn't exist. We create somebody we want to be there, but, but it's not really them. Here's a classic example of idealization. Young women, let's say you're in a college cafeteria. You're behind your boyfriend. He's got his tray. A napkin flies off his tray. He bends down and picks it up. You run to your girlfriends, and you want to nominate him for a Nobel Peace Prize. Like, did you see what he did? He picked up the napkin. I, he's so thoughtful toward the wait staff, and he cares about the environment. I mean, I, next to Jesus Christ, I don't know if a man of his character has ever walked the earth. And your friends, he picked up a napkin. And then, just as sadly, you miss the clues of where he might fall short. Are you sure about him? Because I know he picked up the napkin, but he seems kind of angry to me. No, he's passionate. That's what I really love about him. He's just a passionate man. I'm not sure. It sounded to me like he was cussing that guy out. No, I think he was speaking in tongues. You know, he's, he's very <laughs> spiritual in his... his own. And, and so, carried by this idealization, we miss a key biblical truth. Why do you get bored with your same spouse? Why do you become uh, frustrated with them? The Bible tells you you're going to be. James chapter 3, verse 2, in just six words, the Apostle James lays it out. He says this, We all stumble in many ways. Who stumbles? 
How many times do they stumble? In many ways, regardless of who you choose, you're choosing someone the Bible promises you they're not going to completely fulfill you. They can't. It will feel like it when you're infatuated that you finally found somebody that can, but in the end, you're marrying somebody who will mess up, not just occasionally, but in a lot of ways. And, and so if we want our marriage to be based on an affection over two people who stumble in many ways, we're in, a real tr- we're in real trouble. But why we need a magnificent obsession is this. Jesus wants us to lift our lives entirely above a human affection to a divine pursuit. To lift our lives above a human obsession to a divine pursuit. And that's what I call the magnificent obsession. In the heart of his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gave us the agenda behind which every life fulfilled has to live. Jesus knew what he was talking about. He gave us his true teaching, and that was this. In Matthew 6, Jesus says this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then there's this promise. If you do this, all these other things will be added unto you as well. Now, he doesn't say seek first a happy marriage or an intimate marriage or successful kids. He says if you want to set your life upright, your first pursuit, your first concern has to be my kingdom. Now, I know this sounds so religious. I know what what does this have to do with marriage? It has everything to do with marriage. Because if you get married to seek first your happiness, if you get married to seek first your intimacy, and you marry somebody who stumbles in many ways, you'll never get there. And then you'll be frustrated. And you think there's something wrong with your marriage, when in fact there might just be something wrong with your view and expectations of marriage. See, God has designed us in such a way we cannot be fulfilled with small lives. And behind most dissatisfaction in marriages, I find small lives. They're trying to find compatibility around small things that don't really matter. And Jesus says, if you were called to seek first my kingdom, you'll never be bored with each other because God is so passionately involved in this world. He's raising couples to be advocates of adoption, to reach out into schools and education, to build businesses together, to reach the arts community, the sports community, to work in a local church. It's that passion that drives us and the most intimate couples I know are couples that live for a reality outside of themselves and a magnificent obsession so they're not sweating the small stuff because I have this bigger view, we were created for more than just each other. We're created for nothing less than the kingdom of God. And so if you've grown distant apart because you can't get compatible, because you know what? You like onion on your pizza, and you'll never like onion on your pizza. You can't resolve that. But you can join around a common purpose. What is our purpose? Why might God have joined us together, and how do we begin to pursue his kingdom? And righteousness, again, this sounds so idealistic and so religious, but here's how I think it is such a practical marital verse. If I am seeking first Christ's righteousness, when I wake up and it's about how do I pursue Christ's righteousness, I'm literally dying to the attitudes and the actions that destroy marital intimacy. I'm dying to impatience. I'm dying to being harsh or critical. I'm dying to lust and those other things. Let me just give you a great example I found working with men. When I find a man that is 80% of the time angry at his wife, and I really probe more often than not, I find pornography in his life. And it makes sense to me. Look, I'm not a therapist. I'm just talking really more as a spiritual director than anything. But it makes sense to me that a guy who is looking at that is saying to himself, my wife doesn't satisfy me. I, I need something else. 
And then he might feel guilty immediately afterwards, but it doesn't take too many hours for them to start thinking, you know what? Why doesn't she satisfy me? Maybe if she did, then I wouldn't have to deal with the struggle. I wouldn't deal with the shame. I don't, wouldn't deal with the guilt. And then he becomes angry. And so he's angry at his wife, but he's not connecting it. The reason he's angry is he's not seeking first God's righteousness. He's seeking his own pleasure or his own happiness. And not only does seeking first his righteousness help me to die to the things that destroy relationship, it helps me build the things that serve relationship. I'm pursuing gentleness and patience and kindness and faithfulness and self-control. Do you think there is a home in the world that won't be blessed if you increase the level of patience and kindness and joy and the fruit of the Spirit? Some of you might be here without a spouse and say, well, I want to seek first God's righteousness. My spouse doesn't care at all. I, I feel for you, and I know that's tough, but if you increase your level of patience and kindness and love, there's still more patience, kindness, and love in the home, and I believe it's going to be a more pleasant place to live than if it wouldn't have. And so when I take Jesus' admonition seriously to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, I found out that his promise is true. These other things that I want, they're more likely to be true because instead of having a small life, we can have a big marriage of shared purpose. We're pursuing God's righteousness so we're becoming the kind of people who can relate. Even though we stumble in many ways, becoming more and more like Christ, we find that we know how to handle each other and appreciate each other. Here's what I'm trying to say. When we get married for trivial reasons, getting married for an infatuation that will fade in 12 to 18 months is a trivial reason, we're going to get divorced for trivial reasons. Doesn't that make sense? If I get married for a trivial reason, then I'm going to get divorced for a trivial reason. If I get married because I'm just so attracted to this woman and, and she just knocks me out, but then what happens when she becomes familiar and then time goes on and then she's mothering kids and then I go to my office and there's another woman who has two hours a day because she doesn't have anything else going on to spend in the gym and an hour to put on makeup and doesn't have to wear clothes they're gonna get spit up on and vomited on by a baby and so then I'm saying well man maybe I'm more attracted to her now what happens to my marriage if I'm attracted because we have so much fun on our dates, we have such a good time, we laugh so much, but then we get married and now we're paying bills and, and b taking care of kids and trying to keep a house clean and suddenly we can't remember the last time we laughed and then there's this other woman that we just always seem to laugh when we get together. Now my marriage is threatened. But if it's about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that magnificent obsession... My marriage is just about divorce proof because neither one of those will ever end. So the first pillar is adopting a magnificent obsession. The second pillar is this. We need to grow in our greatest need. And it's not what I thought it was when I first got married. I want you to ask yourself, why did you get married? Or if you're single, why do you want to get married? It's a shocking time for me in prayer one time when I realized as God presented this question to me that I got married for primarily selfish reasons. I liked the way my wife looked. I, we laughed together. I thought she'd be a good mom. Because this, this, this. I thought my greatest need was to be loved. That's what Hollywood had told me. That's what American Top 40 songs tell me. It's the plot of novels they would tell me. I want somebody who always has my back, who is always there, who will never hurt me, who will never leave. That's what I thought I needed, but the Bible tells me we all stumble in many ways. 
So when I began to realize that, you know what, my, my greatest, if God designed marriage to destroy selfishness rather than to fulfill my selfishness, that perhaps my greatest need isn't to be loved because God has already met that need. My greatest need is to learn how to love. I, I know your greatest need is to be loved in one sense, but God's perspective is that need has been met. He sent his son to die for us. He's given us his Holy Spirit who empowers us, who forgives us, who equips us, who convicts us if we're running off into sin so we don't destroy our loves. None of us, if we're in Christ, can say we lack being loved. God loves us supremely well. You may not be cultivating that experiential relationship, but it is there if, if we want it. And so our greatest need to be loved isn't completely true any more than a guy that though he needs to eat, pushing back from a Thanksgiving Day table, his greatest need isn't for another meal. That's been met. Which means our greatest need now is to learn how to love. You might say, how do you back that up biblically? The problem is, in just a short sermon, I could give you dozens of passages where Jesus says that, that the greatest command is not only to love God, but to love our neighbor. Jesus says to love even our enemies. Paul says that we should love extravagantly. In Thessalonians, that the love we have for each other should be increasing, applying it to marriage. Ephesians 5, 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. To women in Titus 2, 4, Paul says, Older women should train the younger women to love their husbands women think about that paul is saying that your call to learn how to love a man is so serious you all but need to go to school to figure out how to make that happen i could give you passage after passage after passage love extravagantly love without measure first john says love not with words or tongue but with actions and the truth he tells us how to love now give me just one verse where the Bible says our greatest need is to find another human to love us. It doesn't exist. The weight of Scripture says clearly to us, your greatest need isn't to be loved. That's met in Christ. Therefore, your greatest need is to learn how to love. How that transforms marriage. If I realize then every day waking up and I think my greatest need is to be loved and I'm married to somebody who stumbles in many ways so they don't appreciate me or notice me or love me like I think I should be loved, What's the result? Bitterness, resentment, frustration, eventually maybe even hatred. But if I wake up every day and realize my greatest need is to learn how to love, and I'm married to somebody who stumbles in many ways, I'm in a great place. It's like you have a, a, a soul gym built in right into your home. But see, otherwise we're resented. You know, just think about this. Bodybuilders, and obviously, you know, I'm speaking theoretically here, not from practice, but I've read about them. They don't go into the gym and do curls and complain when it hurts. They know it has to burn. It has to hurt for them to get stronger. Why is it any different for our souls? But they endure the pain. They go to the gym to face the pain because they really believe my need is to get stronger. If I believe my need is to learn how to love because God says, Gary, that is your greatest need. I'm going to look at my marriage from an entirely different angle and I'll be grateful for every day that there are opportunities to grow in love. If we were half as obsessed about whether we are learning to love as we are about whether we are being loved, I believe our marriages would change. I believe our satisfaction level in marriage would be completely transformed. The reality is that we just seek an entirely different marital experience often than God created us to enjoy. So the first pillar of building that home 
is a magnificent obsession. The second one is recognizing our greatest need isn't to be loved. It's to learn how to love. So what's the third pillar? And that is to embrace marriage as worship. There's a sobering moment for me one time as a young husband. I was not treating my wife very well. And I went to prayer and God was convicting me. The words I heard were this, Gary, Lisa isn't just your wife. She's my daughter. And I expect you to treat her accordingly. And in essence, God was applying two passages to my marriage. First John 3, 1, we're told, Behold, how great the Father has loved us, how he's lavished his love, because we are called the children of God. And Ephesians 5, 1, we're called dearly loved children. And I'd claim those verses as a single man. God loves me. I'm his son. He's never going to let me go. He loves me as his son. And God says, yes, that's true, Gary, but I want you to apply that to your wife, my daughter. And when I had kids, I got the power of this reality. You know, I know my kids stumble. I know exactly how they stumble. I know what will most frustrate my two future sons-in-laws with each one of my daughters. Which is why if they would just let me pick, I think I could probably do a pretty good job for them. But I am praying that God will send my daughters men who will still love them and adore them and make them feel safe. Because even though I know they stumble in many ways, it is almost scary to me how desperately I want my daughters to be loved. And when I finally realize God feels about my wife, his daughter, just as I feel about those two girls, only in a pure and and more intense way, everything about my marriage changed. We meditate a lot on God as our Heavenly Father because that is a foundational Christian doctrine. But if you want to transform your marriage, meditate on God as father-in-law. Because he is. The day you get married, God becomes your father-in-law. And that transforms the way we look at being married to somebody who stumbles in many ways. We recognize that though we know they stumble, they still belong to God. And here's what I love so much about this. In the Hollywood view of finding a soulmate, You find somebody who enthralls you for a few dates and then you marry him without really knowing them and then it fades as you realize that you did marry somebody who stumbles in many ways. But when my love for my wife is based on the brilliance of a God that I can never grow tired of, that I was designed to worship and love for eternity, a God who never stumbles, not once, who is perfect and has called me and saved me, then my love is secure. Men, this understanding really helped me begin to understand Peter a little bit. In one of his epistles, he had this passage that always confused me because it seemed backwards. When he said, Husbands, treat your wives with respect. Why? So that nothing will hinder your prayers. That always seemed backwards to me because I always thought I needed to pray so I could have a better marriage. And Peter is literally saying, No, Gary, you need to have a better marriage so that you could pray. How how does that work? Well, when I understood God as my heavenly father-in-law, everything began to make sense. Let let me give you an analogy. It's a little bit creepy, but I think it'll make the point. If if there was a young man enthralled with one of my daughters, came to me and said, Gary, I have such respect for you. You've had such an impact on my life. I'm going to give you 10% of my income just because I think you deserve it because you've had that big of an impact. And I've read your books and memorized passages. I've even gotten some people to write some songs about you. And we get together and sing songs. And this is the creepy part, right? But then he comes down to this. I know this guy. 
and he's making one of my daughters miserable. Abuse, neglect, whatever it is. I only have one conversation with that guy. I don't care about anything else he's doing. I'm saying, hey, bud, if you say you reverence me, you take care of my little girl. Because until you, until you start taking care of my little girl, we have nothing else to talk about. It's all I care about right now. Then we could go on to the lesser issues, but this is the first one. How can you say that's your view of me if you treat my child that way? We didn't marry orphans. If you married in Christ, you married one of God's son or children that Ephesians 5.1 says is dearly loved. And that helps us. Women, I know when you got married, you might have dreamed of these long, soul-filled discussions late into the evening as you shared your hearts with your husband. And then six, years, six months into your marriage, realize you married a guy that wouldn't know an emotion if it bit him on the nose until he bled. And, and I get your disappointment. But if you could understand the joy in heaven, when God looked down on your wedding day and said, my son has found a good woman, and, and she'll stand behind him and she'll build him up and she'll help him become all that I dreamed that he could be. She'll bring out those latent qualities and with her support and with her encouragement, he's going to shine like the stars and I can't tell you how happy I am with her. And guys, if we married that woman missing the attitude because we were infatuated or not realizing that breast cancer or Alzheimer's or severe arthritis or something was in our fu- her future, we get tempted to feel sorry for ourselves and say, I didn't sign up for this. If only we could see the joy that our heavenly father-in-law took when he looked down on the day we got married and said, my daughter's found a good man and he will stand beside her and he will adore her. And on her worst days, when she feels like the ugliest woman on the planet, he will kiss her bald head and make her feel like she's the most beautiful. And he'll bring laughter into her toughest moments. And he'll never let her feel like she's a burden. He'll only make her feel like she's the greatest delight in his life. He's celebrating with the angels that his daughter is so well loved. So what this tells us is our marriages are about far more than our own happiness. It's so much bigger, side by side, serving God together, growing in righteousness, growing in our greatest need, learning how to love. And understanding God as our father-in-law so that our marriage is now connected to our worship. And when we do, things really change. We give an example of how that happened, and I'll end with this in just one woman's life. Krista's husband was a brigade surgeon serving in Iraq. So she was basically a single mom with their boys. He was off for six months. He had been stationed there for six months. Found out he was going to get a leave. Sent her an email. Honey, I'm coming back. Got a two-week leave. Krista got the email. And first she said, yes. (laughs) I've been a single mom for six months. Finally, it's me time. I'm going to the spa. I'm going to get my nails done. I'm going to have lunch with Becca. She's thinking all that she could do. But at some point, she decided that maybe she should pray about this. And she found herself praying this. How can I fill up my husband, spirit, soul, and body so that he can go back to war for six more months? She didn't use these words, but she used the concept, what if my greatest need isn't to be loved? What if my greatest need is to learn how to love? How will that impact the way I spend these two weeks with my husband? So she sat before the Lord, and God gave her some very practical ways for her to love Caleb. First thing she did was write to him and say, I know you haven't been eating the best in the military. What what do you want when you get home? 
He gave her a list of things he was looking forward to. She went to the grocery store, bought everything on the list. Then she went to an entirely different kind of store. And in her words, she bought seven bedroom outfits in seven different colors. She arranged child care with a friend for the first 24 hours, saying, my husband's been a soldier away at war. When he gets back, he's going to do things we don't want the kids to see or hear. Let's just get him out of the way so that we can enjoy each other. And as a special treat, she bought a book on massage, and in her words, she studied it. They came when Caleb flew in. They have the ceremony. They pick him up. She brought some civilian clothes, went out to dinner with the kids so they could get reacquainted, got the kids out of the way, came back, and she said, we made out on the couch just because we could. She knew that Caleb's love language was physical touch, so she drew him a bath, and I'll let her take the story from there. I straddled the tub with my big sponge, and began to cleanse the smells of war. And as I washed the odor of war away, I prayed to cleanse his soul from the spirit of death and destruction. As I washed his head and hair, I prayed, Lord, let nothing he has thought harm him. As I wiped his eyes, I prayed, Lord, let nothing he has seen stay in his heart. As I washed his ears, I prayed, Lord, let nothing he has heard touch his spirit. I washed and prayed over every part of my husband, begging God that nothing would take root, that all evil would be washed away. It's an amazingly spiritual moment when this wife, welcoming her husband back, all but anointing every part of his body, saying, Lord, in serving our country, he's had to see terrible things. Cleanse those. He's had to hear terrible things, cleanse his ears. He's had to face terrible things, cleanse his soul. Let him be renewed. It's such a spiritual moment. And then it became very physical. She got in the tub with him. And after a couple minutes, she said, honey, pick a color. He said, what? She goes, pick a color. Why? Just pick a color. You'll be glad you did. Blue. She got out of the tub, came back, and wore one of the blue bedroom outfits. And in her words, we made love five times in the first 24 hours he was home. Was this even physically possible? I don't know. That might take marine training. But (laughs) Semper Fi Caleb, all right? He he rose to the challenge. Now, now Caleb responded in kind. He found... Krista found out he stepped in so she did go get to have lunch with Becca she got to have her nails done later on in the week she decided to put the massage to practice it was in the middle of the afternoon Caleb was so relaxed he fell asleep for two hours in the afternoon he wakes up groggy just kind of shuffles into the kitchen saying honey that was amazing I didn't sleep like that the entire time I was in Iraq finally the two weeks were up Caleb had to return. And here's how Krista described it. Our two weeks were a supernatural feast of intimacy with the Lord and with one another. I want to pause there. How many of you wives would look at two weeks in your life with your husband and describe them as a supernatural feast of intimacy? And notice the doorway that got Krista there. It wasn't about, boy, it's my time now. He needs to love me. I've been off on my own. I've been raising his kids. To have a supernatural feast, she had to completely turn it around. 
What if my greatest need is to learn how to love him? And she did that. She didn't feel walked over. She didn't take it, feel taken advantage of. In fact, she felt like it was an intimacy unlike anything she'd ever experienced. She goes on to say this, Had I loved him, spirit, soul, and body, so he was ready to return to war, three days after he got back, he emailed me and said, Thank you for the best two weeks of my life. Look, I get I totally get women how if your husband's been away for six months and you find out he's coming back that your first natural thought is it's me time. I understand that. But if we want a sacred marriage, if we want a supernatural marriage, if we want a lifelong love, we say, what does it mean for God to build this marriage? It it means that it's not just about me. It's how do we side by side? My husband's doing important work. How do I support him in this work? How do I pursue righteousness along with God's kingdom? How do I ask not that my greatest need is to be loved, but to learn how to love? And how do I recognize that this is God's son returning and show my thankfulness to God by loving his son? And why, why does this produce a lifelong love, not just staying together, but growing together? Here's what I love. Every reason that the world gets married for, you have such good times, The romance is over the top. Sexual chemistry is boiling over. All of those things, we all know they fade. If I love my wife out of reverence for God, if she is an 85-year-old arthritic Alzheimer's patient, she is no less God's daughter then than she is today. These aren't just pie-in-the-sky, spiritual, idealistic principles. They're the bedrock truths, I believe, the three pillars to build a spiritually intimate, lifelong love. Give yourself over to the magnificent obsession of Matthew 6.33. Remember that your greatest need isn't to be loved, but to learn how to love and connect your marriage with worship. Treat God as your heavenly father-in-law. Let's pray. Lord, I would pray first for the singles that are here. I pray that just hearing what makes a marriage succeed would remind them what they need to pursue first in choosing someone to marry. That even thinking about marrying somebody who doesn't know you, who doesn't worship you, who doesn't seek your kingdom, who doesn't seek your righteousness, who wants to be loved because he doesn't feel loved by you or she doesn't feel loved by you. Lord, show them the futility of that. Give them the heart to build a lifelong love with somebody that will share the most important love, yours. Lord, for those marriages that feel tired, that had that rush of infatuation, but never really sought to become one as a couple, I pray, Father, that they would be eagerly anticipating what life might be like if they'll let those edges be sanded off and pursuing these three pillars, Lord, have their marriage not only built, but rebuilt by you. Lord, for those marriages that are doing well, but maybe they've lost that sense of awe and wonder that marriage is about even more than we could have imagined. I pray that they would recapture that. They could hold each other's hands a little bit tighter, pray a little bit more, and Father, enjoy the blessing of a supernatural feast of intimacy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. 
for more information about service times and ways to connect. Visit us online at gracecc.net.